I have just been asked if I would change the name of the class to Extraordinary Life. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Thank you. And I, for those of you who are watching via live stream that we used to refer to as the pajama people, um, I was visited by a spirit this morning who told me to tell you that it's time to show up here in person. So if you're in the Harris County area, next Sunday be here because um, uh, at the request of two people who are in this class, next Sunday I'm going to deal with the topic of Given how things are in the world, how in the world can we have a moral obligation to be happy? That's next week. All right. So we do that. I hope that's not for anybody here. <laughs> so would you, as a courtesy to others, please check and make sure your cell phone is off. And... Uh, as always, uh, thanks to the crew who are back there with all that equipment that is like Greek to me that makes this work. And welcome to those of you who are watching online next Sunday here, and um, we'll see you then. So for those people, thank you. So let's do as we are in the habit of doing. Let's begin in silence. And I think I mentioned to you last week that in my own personal work, what I'm doing is focusing a lot on um, gratitude. It's so energizing to think about the things you're grateful for and the people you're grateful for, all that had to happen for you to be here, all the connections. So you might want to bring that to mind, but mostly let's just spend time trying to get into space put other things aside and let's be here, be open. So our commitment in this time is to honor love and honesty and freedom. And we do what we do here with the intention that it benefit all people everywhere. Amen. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the guy that I have mentioned to you a number of times lately, a man who, along with Carl Jung, set my professional path. Uh, Fosdick was an uh, amazing guy. He's the guy who, a hundred years ago this month, last month, wrote the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, which Diana Butler Bass and other church historians have concluded they have. And we have to live with that particular reality. When I was in undergraduate school and I first encountered this man and his writings, mostly sermons that Fosdick wrote, many of which are like that um, 
fundamentalist uh, sermon, they, they are still so relevant. Um, and the value that, that um, Harry Emerson Fothick and Carl Jung played for my own professional life is that at the time, they helped me make a commitment to put psychological truths and spiritual principles together. Now, after decades of work, I see they were never separated, should not be separated, they are together, but he, he was very influential in, to me. And uh, in, in terms of preaching, Fostick said, no one drives across town on a Sunday morning hoping to hear the latest thing that happened to the Jebusites. Now, uh, in case you don't know, the Jebusites were a Canaanite tribe that inhabited Jerusalem around the 10th century B.C., around the time of Joshua, around the time Joshua and Judges were, were written. And, and Fostick said, if people are, are motivated to attend a church service or a gathering like this for you to show up here, you're not interested in the Jebusites. Rather, it's for the hope of something that can be useful in dealing with our hopes and fears about what's currently going on in the world and about what will be going on next. And I would add further that no one shows up to a gathering like this hoping to hear a message of doom and gloom. I got that. I understand that. I completely agree with that. So, let's talk about the Jebusites. Actually, uh, let's talk about Lazarus. Uh, this is a very early depiction of Lazarus. Dr. McDonald asked me in the sacristy this morning, what are you doing in ordinary life? And I said, I'm going to talk about Lazarus. You know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth and have life. But Lazarus came fifth and got a toaster. <laughs> and <laughs> he said, you're not going to use it, are you? And I said, no. So I won't. <laughs> so Lazarus is the uh, character in the seventh of seven sign stories that appear in the Gospel of John. Seven sign stories in the Gospel of John parallel to seven days of creation in the Genesis story. It's important to kind of know. There's an eighth sign story that is coming, which is new creation, and the eighth sign story will be the... Oh, people. <laughs> it's the resurrection, just a little minor thing like that. Okay. So uh, a sign is something that points beyond itself. A sign is encapsulated in that well-known Buddhist saying, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. So anyone who mistakes one of these signs as something that Jesus actually did, like turning water into wine or raising Lazarus from the dead, misses the reality of what that sign is pointing to. Lazarus is one of the most complex characters in the Gospels. Uh, Lazarus is a created character created to make a point. 
For one thing, Lazarus is not mentioned in any source prior to what we read in John. Now, John was written near the end of the first century. So a man as crucially important to the Jesus story as the story being told in John, had he been a real person, would surely have made an impression on people in the 60 years prior to the time that the Gospel of John was written. Further, Lazarus is identified in the story that we read last Sunday, which I promised I would not reread because it's so long. Uh, he's identified as the brother to Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha were very prominent in the gospel narratives and very close to Jesus, but during all of that time, their brothers never mentioned. So, um, Further, he, Lazarus is identified in this story as someone that Jesus loved dearly, but he's not mentioned prior to this particular time. The story of Lazarus is developed with drama. Jesus waits till Lazarus is good and dead. And when he arrives on the scene, there's a big crowd of mourners that has gathered both Jesus' enemies and his friends. So this is an act that is going to be seen by a wide audience. And I want you to notice further that Jesus is depicted as doing something, when Jesus is depicted as doing something miraculous in John, it is always over the top. So Jesus didn't just turn water into wine. He turned 150 gallons of water into wine. Uh, he didn't just heal a cripple. He healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. He didn't just restore sight to a man. He restored sight to a man born blind. He didn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. He raised a man who had been in the grave four days. I mean, these are dramatic things. So um, already the, the body of Lazarus had been decay, as Shelby Spong says in his commentary on John. This is going to be a powerful, dramatic sign acted out on a very public stage. Further, if you go back and you read the Gospel of John and you read the story of the raising of Lazarus, it's like a Broadway play. There's this long preamble to the story. Jesus' emotions are portrayed in the story. Jesus wept. There are two encounters with the sisters of Lazarus because Jesus needs to teach this theology about what's going to happen next in the resurrection. And there is this three-part affirmation on the part of Martha who says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. And then the dramatic moment arrives when, after a long procession to the gravesite, Jesus commands the stone to be removed, and he calls Lazarus to come forth, which Lazarus does, bound up like a mummy. Now, you get a picture of that. Lazarus is coming out of the grave like a penguin. That is... Now, you can imagine how the, the crowd, both friends and enemies, would have reacted. Their gasp of wonder. You couldn't retain the reactions of people had that been an actual happening. It's impossible that such an event would not have found its way back into the material that goes all the way back to the very first of the Jesus story. But 
It's waiting four generations for this story to be told. Now, the Gospel of John, as I said, was written for a number of reasons. One was to explain from this, Jew, this community's experience why Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world, had been executed. And for that purpose, you'll find it in an earlier saying in John by Jesus, attributed to Jesus, and it is, when I am lifted up from the earth, Meaning, when I am able to be seen, I will draw all people to myself. Now, as people who had been excluded, who had been pushed out of their Jewish community, these followers of Jesus saw Jesus as the ultimate boundary crosser, the ultimate barrier breaker who would unite all people. This was their view. Now, there is another, as I mentioned last Sunday, character in the Gospels named Lazarus. Um, this is in one of Jesus' parables, and we're going to get to that Lazarus before this class is over. Now, it was not surprise you to know that the story of Lazarus has had a profound impact on uh, developing Christian tradition an art of all kinds across the millennia. There is a tradition that Lazarus never, after resurrection, never smiled because he had seen the souls of those in hell and he was so distraught by that, he could never smile again. That's a tradition that's brought up about him. He was made bishop in a couple of places. He had to run. Uh, the um, tomb of Lazarus, reputed tomb of Lazarus in Bethany, continues to be a place for pilgrims to go to this day. Uh, of course, over the centuries, like all of these holy sites, various groups, the Christians, the Muslims, the Jews, have claimed that they have the right site. And, uh, of course, like all these sites in, it, in, in antiquity, most of them are questioned by archaeologists now. Um he had to flee. This is another tradition from um, the area. Uh, and he lived on for 30 years before dying again. Now, I don't usually recommend Wikipedia as a source, but if you're really interested in knowing more about the raising of Lazarus, look that up under, under Wikipedia. Um, Lazarus is a frequent theme in catacomb paintings and, and drawings. Um, of course, the period from the masters, he shows up a lot. Uh, this is a Caravaggio. Rembrandt pointed it. And believe it or not, Van Gogh painted uh, a picture of the raising of Lazarus. So Lazarus has appeared many times in writings, um, music, art. He's mentioned in Moby Dick. He's mentioned in Crime and Punishment. Eugene O'Neill wrote a play called Lazarus Laughed. And this extends right down to a novel that was written a couple of years ago. As I said, he's been elevated to sainthood in both the Roman and Orthodox Christian churches. So I want our curiosity today to be more about how did this story get created? And how in the world is it relevant for us? Uh, Marcus Borg, who has taught here 
a number of times, thanks to the Foundation for Contemporary Theology. Um, he taught in a Bible college. He taught in a college in the North, Northwest. And so uh, he would encounter in his religion classes people who had been raised in evangelical and conservative churches. So when Borg started teaching his understanding of the biblical materials, he would get pushed back if he indicated that some story wasn't literally true. So um, when Borg would give one of his lectures influenced by his scholarship, and those people would take offense or be defensive about his teaching, the way Bohr got around that was not to argue with them, but just to say, whether the story is literally true or not, let's focus on what the story meant, all right? Um, as I said, the story of the raising of Lazarus was never told before it was told in the Gospel of John, which was not written until 70 years after the death of Jesus. Most of you don't remember what you had for dinner two weeks ago. So trying to remember something from 70 years ago in great detail would be very difficult. So what aspect of the developing Christian tradition would the writers of John have used for the creating of the story of Lazarus? Well, there is a character named Lazarus mentioned in a parable that is told only in Luke. And though this, too, is a parable, I grew up in a church where it was taught to me as the literal truth. And the story is that there is a beggar whose name is Lazarus. The word Lazarus in Hebrew and Aramaic means God helps. And this beggar sits at the door of a rich man, begging, hoping for food every day. The rich man doesn't have a name in the Bible, but tradition has given him the name of Dives. And the rich man does not have eyes to see the beggar. The healing story right before Lazarus is the healing of the man born blind. So in that culture, much like in our culture, the poor did not have value to the rich, except how they could help them in staying in their brokered position. Now, Sherry and I have been extremely graced to have been able to make numerous trips and to see all these wonderful Gothic cathedrals all over um, Europe and Spain and Italy and France. And uh, this is one uh, in Spain. I've got a bunch of these pictures. I took them uh, on pilgrimages that we made with Peter Sills. I've got some that are better than this, but I couldn't find them in a, in a quick time. When we would go on a pilgrimage with Peter Sills, uh, he would have most times with us traveling, a woman who taught at Cambridge who was an authority on reading these things. These things are called timpana. It's from the same word that we get the word timp timpani, a drum from that you see in the symphony. Why they're called that, I don't have a clue. But that's what, what they are called. And because most people could not read, this is the way they got their religious instruction by standing at the front of the cathedral door and they could see these things. 
It's just wonderful to have somebody who really knows what these are about. So I just happen to have the parable. So you can see uh, Lazarus in the lower left-hand corner with the dog slicking his sword. In, right above that, you see uh, what we think to be an angel, and then there's a partition, and over to the right uh, is Dives, dressed much like a king, and I'm assuming next to him is his wife, and then servant people uh, serving Dives. As I said, this, this comes from a church in Spain. Uh, so in this story, both Dives and Lazarus, they die, and they go into the Jewish version of the afterworld. And the rich man goes to a place of torment, and, Dive, and Lazarus, the beggar, goes to spend his eternity resting, as the scripture has it, in the bosom of Abraham. Shelby Spong says, quote, I believe that if I were destined to spend eternity lying in someone's bosom, I would prefer it not to be Abraham's. <laughs> you can get away with a lot of stuff if you just quote somebody else, you know. It's just a... So in this story... There is an ability for Dives to see and know what's going on with the beggar. And there's an ability to communicate between these two realms. So the rich man says, speaking to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This torment is more than I can bear. Please send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So, so even in this state, the rich man sees Lazarus as someone whose only purpose is to serve his needs. A thing to be used, not a person to be valued. And Abraham says, no dice, you made your bed, now lie in it. This is a very loose translation. There's more to it. You should read the story. Get Eugene Peterson's version and read the story. It's a, great, it's a great story. So the rich man accepts this and then says, Well then, please send Lazarus to my brothers. I have five of them. How many books in the Torah? And warn them so that they don't end up here. And Abraham says, and this begins to tie this story to the Lazarus story in John. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man says, that won't do. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. When was John written? 70 years after crucifixion. Why was John written? For one thing, to explain why the Messiah had been crucified. For another was to give their version of resurrection. So John was written, resurrection had occurred in the Christian community. They were making sense of it. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
Abraham replies to Dives. And this is what the raising of Lazarus by Jesus and John is meant to convey. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should come back from the dead. So the people who wrote the Gospel of John had already experienced resurrection. And they tried to take this energy and vision, the freedom and love this gave them, back into their synagogues. And the Jewish leadership would have none of it. Everything that had been holding them together, according to the Jewish leadership, would come apart if they embraced the Jesus in, in John. All the things that keep members of the human community separated from one another disappear in Jesus' teachings. And so in this sense, Jesus represents the ultimate threat to our tribal religious life. This is a powerful story. This is a powerful scene. This scene and the people are a powerful metaphor for what it means to be between the no longer and the not yet. Or as I'll say later, between the, a past they can be grateful for, a past that has brought them right to where we are right now, but that past cannot take them further into a new future. For John and the people in this community of faith, Jesus had expanded their lives into this incredible new dimension. A new oneness was experienced as people stepped beyond what they thought they were into an identity that they derived from their understanding of God. They call this Resurrection. They call this eternal life. And <clears throat> where we messed up, or some of our teachers messed up, was telling us that resurrection was out there, yet to be, and eternal life was something in the future. And John, and the writers of John, and the Johannan community said, mm-mm. Resurrection now. Now, did this life-changing experience bring faith? And the answer in John is no, it didn't. Rather, what it brought was persecution. It brought expulsion from their synagogue. Those who trusted the law and the prophets, which we talked about last week, did not understand what the law and the prophets pointed to. They could not embrace the grace that was Jesus. It was this vision of new life which they were, which they call resurrection. And, and this is what broke the synagogue right in two. I cannot, I cannot help but connect this to the various times across. I'm more familiar with Protestant Christian history in the United States 
the many, many times that the church has been broken in two because it couldn't get the vision of what's next. It's happening now in the United Methodist Church. So the enemies of Jesus were not even able to believe this as it is in the Gospel of Luke, even if someone rose from the dead. And um, with this, the book of signs comes to an end, except for resurrection, which we'll get to in a number of weeks. It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. Now we have, thank goodness, scholars like John Dominic Crossan, Dominic Crossan wrote probably the first really good book on the Jesus historical Jesus that I read. It's not a new book, but it's worth reading. Crossan's still alive, still writing, still contributing. Um, just wonderful, wonderful writer. And um, as other Jesus scholars, uh, Bruce Chilton is the man who wrote Rabbi Jesus, which is to me the best biographical book written about Jesus that I've ever read. It's very readable, and it uh, will stretch your thinking. I'm really grateful for these people because they continue to do work that adds to our understanding of the developing Christian story back then. And because of their work, I'm thinking of John Shelby Spong and, and Crossan and Bruce Chilton and Marcus Borg and all these other people who have done this work. I'm building on what they do. It's my words, but I'm building on the foundation that, that they have done. So the apostles and disciples of Jesus were all Jewish. Apostles and disciples are not the same. Apostles were people Jesus deputized to go take the gospel out. And disciples were those who, like us, say that we want to try to follow Jesus. Right? So being Jewish, they did, after the death of Jesus, what Jesus did before his death, and that was they went back to the synagogue. And they, uh, in their synagogue worship, started telling these stories about their experience of Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. And they amplified on them, and they morphed them, and they did this. You remember, you remember the night that this Nicodemus fellow came to talk to Jesus? This is one of my professors in the seminary said, this has got to be made up because nobody was there with Jesus and Nicodemus to write it down. All right? And somebody said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember that one of the things that Jesus said about that. And then, you know, um, somebody ran into Nicodemus and he said, and then they started putting these stories together. And they slotted them, according to the scholars now, into the Jewish liturgical year. The Jews are liturgical geniuses. And so the Gospel of Mark was written really to kind of coincide with six months of the Jewish liturgical calendar. It's just so short. Luke and Matthew expand to include all 12 months of the liturgical calendar. 
So the Gospels were developed in the context of the Jewish synagogue worship for decades. Even if you go short with Mark, which is written late 40s, early 50s, that's still quite a while. You know, the church wasn't formed overnight, which is what I believed, that Jesus died and the next Wednesday night they went to prayer meeting. It didn't happen that way. That's what I was taught, but it didn't happen that way. I mean, even the most uh, progressive these scholars like Crossan say that the notion of resurrection was not something that developed overnight. It was months, years in coming to an understanding. Oh, yeah. So as these Jewish people in their synagogues began to have these insights, they became troublemakers in the synagogue. They didn't mean to be. It was just that as they got these new insights and experiences and tried to put them into the synagogue, the people who were in charge of the way the synagogue ought to be run were acting very much like they acted in the time of Jesus. They said, mm, you got to come through us to get this story validated. And these followers of Jesus, again, taking their cues from him, said, mm, we don't have to do that anymore. And so the rift began to grow. You get the picture. So in John, when there is a depiction of the Jews, it's not an ethnic description. It's a theological description. Because the people who wrote John were Jews. So they were having a family fight among themselves, a theological fight. Now, I think it's also helpful to understand that during these first centuries, decades turned into centuries, there was no one way to understand what it means to be Christian or to have a community of faith. There were many. And um, there was great diversity in the developing Christian movement. And one thing that Constantine put an end to early in the fourth century was this diversity and calling people together and saying, I'm going to make you the religion of the Roman Empire. However, you got to get your act together. So the first council was not called by the church. It was called by, by, by Constantine. Constantine said, write something that will cause everybody to agree. And that's when we started turning on each other. Now, the society in which John took place was called the belonging system. And um, your identity, your social security, literally, your sense of well-being, indeed, your well-being itself came from the group you were part of. So the early Christian movement embraced this, which is one of the reasons that excommunication became such a powerful thing. If you were put outside the community, that was like death. So there was this great tension that developed in the Jewish community because of these Jesus followers. And it's this tension that this time today in this class is about. It's the tension between being very grateful for what was and at the same time saying thanks, saying thanks to what was, and at the same time saying yes to what will be. And this most of you will know is uh, Dr. Hammarskjöld quote, for all that's been thanks and for all that will be, yes. So here are these people 
Their lives had been absolutely transformed by their experience with Jesus. And their experience was, he's alive, he's here, he's with us right now. And the proof of that is that our lives are transformed. We're filled with joy. We're filled with fearlessness. We have love for one another. And, and uh, one of the stories that they told about that was the time that Jesus transformed water into wine. An external rite was taken in, made an inner experience. That's the first sign of the Gospel of John. So that if you and I had been alive at that time, um, we would have experienced it as a dark time. It was a dark time. Most people were on the bottom of the social economic heap. Life was hard. Life expectancy was short. We didn't think of it that way because nobody, very few people, lived beyond 50. That's just the way it was. And had we encountered someone from this group, um, and, and we would have likely been attracted to them. What attracts you? I, well, I'll speak for myself. The, the thing that has attracted me to the spiritual teachers that I've had across the years have been their, their joy and their happiness and their ability to just welcome people in. I want more of that. They were happy, fearless, loving, accepting. And if we'd ask somebody, how come? Why are you this way? They might say, well, we have been affected and infected by a guy named Jesus and his teachings. Well, come on, tell me some more. Well, how? He's taken our understanding of religion and religious beliefs and absolutely transformed them. Um, it's like... Uh, it's like he took water and made it into wine. And when we drank this stuff, we were transformed. It's like we were born blind, but he has given us back our sight. You know, it's like we were a stinking corpse in a grave and he's given us new life. That's my active imagination at work. I'm so very glad. I'm very, very grateful for, in, in so many ways, by the time I spent, and I had no choice about this, the time I spent growing up in a Southern Baptist church in Tennessee, I'm just very grateful for that. I learned the Bible. I was around people who loved me in spite of their limitations. I, I, I see now that that religious understanding, and it was nobody's plan to do this, nobody's malevolent plan, but that religious understanding that shaped that particular community had taken everything that was holy, pure, beautiful, and divinely created about me and covered it up in a manure of shame and guilt and fear I was taught you're a sinner from the get-go. You know, unless you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you're going to go to hell. I spent many nights being frightened that the tree limb brushing against the screen on the bedroom window where I slept with Jesus coming back like a thief in the night. It was terrifying. I was not good enough. 
I absolutely had to have their guidance. I had to accept their three-point plan of salvation, lest I do something to get on God's bad side. And though I escaped that, I can look at their rhetoric now, and I can see that the beliefs in that community where I grew up were that women were inferior, that people of a different color were inferior, that people of a different sexual orientation than mine didn't measure up. And, and their really plan for solving the social issue of the day was thoughts and prayers, which is what we got today. I promise you I am not going to violate the commitment I made at the beginning of class to uh, talk doom and gloom. But um, one of the aspects of the new trinity is honesty. So we ought to talk about the fact that we live in a violent time. And, and the root of violence is the illusion that we are separate from each other and from others. Most of all, that we're separate from grace from being one with everything. You know, I, I was thinking like, you know, the way to illustrate this is that people that we're different from are very like us. Like these ropes are different, but they're separated. You see that? And we can get them together like this, but they're not really together. We can tie a knot in them, and of course that will make things a lot better than they were, right? Or we can go to Hogwarts and learn how to make them one piece of rope. And that's the unity that we're striving for. <clears throat> when we don't know that we're connected, there, the inevitable outcome of that is some form of violence. Because people want to get dignity and power and all that. I've been reading Gerald May's book, The Dark Night of the Souls, seeking for understanding and guidance through this time of darkness in our own world and culture. And Mays draws on the writings of Teresa of Avila and a monk that she enlisted to help her is much younger than Teresa and his name in the writings, though we're not sure of his real name, but his name in the writing is John of the Cross, the name that he took. And, and, and they say that in order to return to our true selves, which is a word that Thomas Merton uses, um, <clears throat> you're going to love this, that we have to have a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> that we have to have times of contemplation and meditation that are always beyond nationality, religion, skin color, gender, sexuality, or any of the other labels that we put on ourselves. So our best teachers, Jesus is one. Uh, he said, you got to give up everything and follow me. And, and, and um, the vows that monks and nuns take are vows of poverty. And I think that what they, plays out in our time is that we have to be in a position where they have nothing to prove and, and nothing to protect. To, to connect so that we know that we're really connected to everything. Next week, I'm going to start this class by, by talking about my relationship with Richard Rohr. And, and Rohr's best known book is Everything Belongs, Everyone Belongs. And this is what cuts violence at its very roots. So uh, just to be clear, 
No one can be a true Christian, whatever you think that means, and be racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, homophobic, or bigoted toward any group or individual, especially the poor and the vulnerable. To end the cycle of violence that we're in, we got to claim our true identity as love. And to the deadness that we experience because we lack this connection to our true identity, Jesus comes and stands before us. My faith is he's here right now saying to you and me, Lazarus, come forth. And, and we got to hear that over and over and over and over and over. This is resurrection. And this is, to me, what the story of Lazarus is about. So like the people who created John, we're caught in this tension. On the one hand, we're being pulled forward by something that wants us to be better. Now, whether we are individually or collectively better than the mass shootings and other expressions of hatred that continue to plague us, that's a debate we can have sometime. But there is in us that that seeks, that wants to make us better. It's in everyone. It's buried deeper in some people than others. And at the same time, we're being pulled backwards by the very things that got us here. As a, as a people to this place, we have used all of that to get here. And, and, and spiritual work, at least, taking its cue from Jesus, um, we have to learn to uh, transcend and transform. Transform and transcend. And as we've emerged and are emerging from the restrictions of the viruses, that, that the viruses put on us, I have been asked more than at any other time since the 60s why I stay with organized religion. And, and, and my answer is, of course, I'm not part of any organized religion. I'm a Methodist. <laughs> That's an old line I heard a long time ago. Now, the reasons I stay and stay here are multifaceted, too complicated to go into here. But one answer involves this business of, of seeing and how we see. Now, you remember, we just dealt with this parable of the man born blind from birth. And, and, and we are all born into a context that affects how and what we see. And for most of our lives, we have been taught what to see, not how to see. And I believe there is a reality, I call it grace, that operates in our lives and around us all the time, and my interest is in what it does that gives us the capacity to see this grace, to experience this grace, to be led by this grace. So a, a lot of the vitality that I experience in my own life and that I try to communicate in here, I get from Jesus. The church I grew up with uh, in taught me that Jesus is the same yesterday yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's horse feathers. I'm not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Neither are you. We all change. 
Our very nature is to evolve, and when we refuse to participate in that evolutionary process, we refuse to participate in the very identity that defines us. Jesus said, greater works than mine you will do. So if we're going to do the work of letting one image die and another be resurrected, uh, we got to get out of a static place. Getting Jesus right is not about believing or rejecting the same thing you did in junior high. The genius of the Lazarus story, at least one aspect, is that Jesus come, Lazarus comes out bound up. Okay? Again, these people were geniuses. He's bound up. He's got to get unbound. And, and I have come to believe that this is the heart of our ongoing spiritual work, to peel away the twisted images that we believe about God, about ourselves, about each other, one lie, one half-truth, one fear at a time. Now, the good news is the truth is already there. It just needs, like Lazarus, to be set free. So I hope you know this about yourself. You were always beautiful. You were always loved, always affirmed, always included, always secure, forever and ever. That's resurrection. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.